Uh, it's great to see everybody today. Uh, let's just start with a word of prayer. And um, just because we do this every week, I think it's worthwhile every once in a while to say why we pray. Because we recognize that we can go through this every single week, but unless the Lord works, we're wasting our time. And so um, we don't want this just to be a religious exercise. We want this to be a time where God pours out His Spirit. And so let me, let me just pray before we start the preaching of His Word uh, and ask that He would help us today. Uh, Father, we, as always, we acknowledge that we are indebted to You, and we acknowledge that if uh, anything's going to happen today that will be of note, it will be because You are gracious and merciful to us. And so, Father, we're praying that Your Spirit would work. We're praying Your Spirit would work. As always, our, our prayer is that you would be, you would open your word and you'd be gracious to us, not because we deserve it, but because you are a gracious and merciful God, that your love is never failing, that you are compassionate, that you're merciful. And so, Father, we know that what we need more than anything today is to hear from you. This is why we gather together every week, because we need to encourage each other, but also because we need to hear from you together. And so as we head towards the retreat and we think about this idea of church as family, we're praying today that we would hear your word as a family and that we would respond to it together. And that as we think about this idea of making Christ the supreme treasure in our lives, Father, we are asking that these would not just be idle words today, but rather that your spirit would open up the word, that we would hear, and that we would gladly accept what your word has to say. And so, Father, as always, we're praying that you would work in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Although it only happens once every four years, I have to say that I love watching the Olympics, particularly the Summer Olympics. And I don't think it's because I necessarily love swimming or gymnastics or water polo. Uh, in between Olympics, I don't think I watch those sports at all. But I think it's the stories that suck me in. It's the stories that make me want to watch the Olympics. I love hearing how much Michael Phelps has to swim in order to be ready for the Olympics, or for that matter, how much he has to eat. It's compelling to hear about the gymnast who moves across the country, leaving their family behind just for the sake of training. But I have to say that over the years, while I've, I've been drawn in by the stories, I'm even more intrigued, I think, as I get older by the story of the parents. Maybe because it's, I'm, it's because I'm a parent now, but I'm, I'm intrigued by how much the parents have to sacrifice for the sake of the athletes. As an example, it's estimated that Missy Franklin's parents, Missy Franklin was probably the best-known swimmer at the London Olympics besides Michael Phelps. She won four gold medals. It's estimated that in the year 2012, Missy Franklin's parents spent over $100,000 in swimming-related expenses. That is quite a sacrifice for a parent. But even for people who are not like Missy Franklin, who is one of the more highly publicized of the athletes, even if you're in a sport that is off the beaten path, the cost is still extraordinary. If, for example, you are a parent and you want your child to make it as an Olympic archer, some of you probably didn't even know that there was archery in the Olympics, but if you want your child to make it as an Olympic archer, you can probably expect to spend around $25,000 a year in archery-related expenses. Table tennis, which you would think would be as about as simple as it can get, you just need a ping-pong table and a ball, right? Costs around $15,000 a year in swimming-related, or not swimming-related, but table tennis-related expenses. If table tennis and swimming could be combined, that would be an amazing sport. That, of course, though, is just the financial aspect. Then you think about some families that are separated. As I mentioned, some athletes will move across the country, leaving behind their families. Gabby Douglas, the gymnast, famously did this the last Olympic cycle. And then there's times where the parents will separate, that one of the parents will go with the aspiring athlete, and the other family will stay home with the rest of the kids. And so you have that cost as well. And then you have the cost of all of the time that is spent traveling. 
Swimmer Nathan Adrian, who qualified for the 2012 Olympics also in swimming, his parents estimated that in the four years leading up to the Olympics, they traveled over 100,000 miles by car just to and from swimming meets. And they flew over 100,000 miles by plane as well to the same thing. Being the parent of an Olympic athlete is not easy. Olympic hockey mom Miriam Chu summed up the situation this way in talking about the sacrifices it took for her daughter to make the Olympics. She said this, we put hundreds of thousands of miles on our cars, and once they got into travel hockey, we started adding staying at a hotel, meals and restaurants. As they were growing, we had to replace their skates, their equipment. Somehow you make do. You're able to do it so that your kids can live their dream. But there were a lot of parents who struggled. It's that last line in particular that got my attention. There were a lot of parents that struggled. That seems to capture the situation well. If your kid is going to make it to the Olympics, it's going to require a struggle. Now listen, even if you don't have a child that's trying to make the Olympics, even if you're not trying to make the Olympics, I'm guessing at some level you can relate to that phrase that it is a struggle. Maybe you're in medical school currently and you're well aware of the fact that it is a struggle. Or maybe at some point along the way you were going for some higher education degree and you realized that it was a struggle even if it was a medical school. Or maybe you've been trying to work your way up the ladder at work and you realize that there is a struggle involved in that as well. Or if you've been a parent, you certainly understand that there is struggle in parenting or marriage. The truth is, if you've ever tried to accomplish anything of note, then you know that there is a struggle that is often associated with it. And so I'm guessing, although you may not have the same struggles as these Olympic parents, you can relate to the fact that they were struggling. And I suppose, not surprisingly, Paul can relate to this as well. He can relate to the idea of a struggle. But what makes Paul different and what sets Paul apart is that the things he was struggling for, the things that he struggled for are oftentimes different than the things that we struggle for. It wasn't that Paul was struggling to be an Olympic athlete or that he was struggling to attain some degree or that he was struggling to work his way up the ladder at work. No, Paul was struggling for something much more fundamental and I would argue in the end, much more important. It's something that he describes here at the beginning of Colossians chapter 2. So let's read here, Colossians 2, starting in verse 1. And let's remember what Paul is struggling for. So Colossians 2, starting in verse 1. And as always, let me remind you before we read, this is the Word of God. So Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So chapter 2 is clearly meant to be a continuation of the last passage that we read last week in Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. In verse 24, Paul said that he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. In verse 29, he said that he had worked hard, that he had toiled with all the energy that God provides so that he could proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. These are the types of things that Paul is talking about when he mentions his struggle for the Colossians and the Laodiceans. He's talking about the suffering. He's talking about how hard he had to work to proclaim the gospel. And he's saying that he is struggling on behalf of the Colossians and Laodiceans. Now he mentions Laodicea because Laodicea, as you may remember in Revelation, was a church that was not far from Colossus. It was about nine miles apart. 
So this was a sister church. Many of the deal or the issues that the church at Colossus was dealing with, the church at Laodicea also would have been dealing with. And what Paul says to both the Colossians and the Laodiceans is that he is struggling for them. Now the fact that Paul is struggling for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, that in and of itself is noteworthy. When we talked about these Olympic parents struggling, well, they were struggling for the sake of their kids. When we talk about struggling to advance at work or struggling academically, we're struggling for our own sake. But Paul is struggling for people that he has never met. He's never met the Colossians. He's never met the Laodiceans face to face. And yet he is struggling for them. I think this tells us something about the character of Paul. I think it also tells us something about his understanding of the gospel. There is no doubt that his love for people that he has never met comes from his love for Jesus Christ. And so he's struggling for these people that he's never met. But what is most notable, I think, is what he is struggling for. And again, this is what sets Paul apart. So in verses 1 and 2 and 3, I think there's three things. There's three things that Paul is struggling for. One of them, I think, takes preeminence over the other two. But there's three things. So we'll get to the one that takes preeminence in just a minute. But let me first mention this. He is struggling that their hearts may be encouraged. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says this in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that live to see and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged. Now this is a phrase that rolls off the tongue, right? That their hearts may be encouraged. And I suspect that as you hear that phrase, you probably think, well, I probably know what that means. But I, I think we need to understand that the way the New Testament uses heart and the way we use heart are oftentimes different. For example, when we talk about the heart, we say things like this. We say things like, he or she has a good heart. Or I've heard a million old ladies over the years say this, and I don't know if this is just a southern thing, but they'll say, oh, bless his heart, or bless her heart, right? That's what we say when we're talking about the heart, because we tend to associate the heart with the emotional center of a person. This is why we say things like, oh, he or she speaks from the heart, because what we're implying is that they're just speaking from their emotional center, they're not speaking from their head. We we tend to contrast those things. And so when we talk about heart, we are talking about the emotional center of a person. But this is not the way that the word heart is used in the New Testament, at least not usually. When the New Testament talks about heart, it's talking about more than just the emotional center of a person. When it's talking about heart, it's talking about the core of who we are. It's talking about the center of our personality. It's talking about the part of us that affects every other part. So when Paul talks about encouraging their hearts, he's not just talking about encouraging them emotionally. What he's talking about is encouraging them to the very depths of who they are. He wants the Colossians to be encouraged in every way by their faith in Jesus Christ. So here's why I think that matters. I think it matters because he does not want them to just be emotionally encouraged. That's typically how we would think of our hearts being encouraged. But he wants them to be encouraged in every way. He wants them to be encouraged in the way that they think, and the way that they act. He does want them to be encouraged emotionally, no doubt, but he wants them to be encouraged in every way. And in that, I think he's reminding us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to impact every area of our life, every area of our life, not just our emotions. And so I think uh, while it's helpful that he's thinking of the Colossians in that way, it's helpful for us to think of the gospel in that way also. The gospel is not just meant to address our emotions. Now, oftentimes, we talk about Christianity in this way. Let me give you an example. When someone is going through suffering, you might hear them say something like this, well, thank goodness I could fall back onto my faith. Right? As if, 
implied in that, I think, and I don't know that people always mean this when they say that, but implied in that is that the rest of my life I'm just living my life apart from my faith, and then when trouble comes, I fall back for emotional support. But that's not the way the New Testament thinks about Christianity. It's not something that we fall back on during times of trouble. Now, we do fall back on Christianity during times of trouble, but it's something that we live out every single aspect of our life. It's not just meant to be a fallback. It's meant to be the, the overwhelming passion of our life. It's meant to be the thing that consumes us. And this is why Paul talks about encouraging their hearts, because he wants every part of them to be encouraged. Now, should the good news of Jesus Christ be something that we can run to in times of trouble? Well, yes. Right? And, and should the gospel be something that emotionally encourages us? Again, the answer is yes. But the point that Paul is making here when he's talking about struggling, when he's talking about suffering, when he's talking about working hard to proclaim the gospel, is that he wants every part of them to be encouraged. He wants them to be encouraged emotionally. He wants them to be encouraged in the way that they think. He wants them to be encouraged in the way that they act. The gospel of Jesus Christ should affect every area of our lives. There is no part of your life that should be left untouched by the good news of Jesus Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, the way that you work, the way that you think, the way that you interact with your family, the way that you respond to suffering, all of it is touched by the good news of Christ dying on the cross for sin. And this is why Paul says that he is struggling to encourage their hearts because he wants every part of them to be encouraged. So that's one thing he's struggling for. Here's the second. He is struggling that they would be knit together in love. Again, verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. In other words, he wanted there to be unity in the body of Christ. If you read through the Pauline epistles, if you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, you realize this is a theme that comes up over and over again. He wants there to be unity in the church. But this is not just Paul. This is the other New Testament writers. This is Jesus too. Consider Jesus' prayer in John 17. You can turn there if you like to John chapter 17. If not, you can just listen along. But John 17, verses 20 to 23. And listen to what he prays for believers. This is what Jesus prays in John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Now, here's what's interesting about John 17. Obviously, he is arguing for the importance of unity because he keeps talking about the importance of believers being one. But he grounds that argument in saying this, that he wants them to be one or he wants them to be unified so that they can reflect the unity that exists within the Trinity. In other words, this is not just a passing issue. This isn't just something where we say, well, if we have unity, great. If not, no big deal. No, this is something that should be of grave concern for the church that we would be united together by a common love for Christ. Now, I think we do need to add this disclaimer. We're not talking about unity at all costs. When Paul talks, for example, in Colossians, about their hearts being knit together in love, he's not saying that no matter what, we should have unity. In fact, the reason I say that is because in the book of Colossians, the main reason he's writing the book is to warn the Colossian believers about false teachers. And he does not want them to be unified with the false teachers. So clearly here... Paul is not arguing for unity at all expenses. 
Now, that's an important distinction to make because we want to be faithful to what the Bible teaches, but we also want to be unified as a church. And so I think before we talk about the unity aspect, let me say this. There are things that we should be willing to break unity over. For example, if someone were to say, if if you were to go to church and the church leadership were to start teaching that Jesus is not God, well, that is an issue that you should break unity over. Or if someone were to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to cover our sins, that we need to add things to what Jesus did, that's something you should break unity over. If someone says that Jesus is not the only way, that is a unity breaker also. Or that the Bible is not the Word of God, or that there's more than one God, those are unity breakers also. If someone denies the Trinity, this is something that we should break unity over. There are things that we should be willing to break unity over. We might call these closed-fisted doctrines. Things that we will hold on to and we will fight for and we will say these are issues that we will break unity over. But on the open-handed issues, issues like uh, maybe how people feel about spiritual gifts or about uh, baptism, for example, those are issues that we say we may disagree on these, but we still want to be unified in Christ. And so, yes, there are issues that we're willing to break unity over, but other than that, our goal is to be unified in Jesus Christ. Our goal, as Colossians 2 would say, is that our hearts would be knit together in love. It's a common love for Christ that unites us. Here's what makes us different than the world around us, is that things like age, race, gender, background, socioeconomic status, those things should not matter when it comes to the body of Christ. Why? Because those things are less important than the common love we have for Jesus Christ. And so, if we rightly understand the gospel, and if we rightly understand what Jesus has done, then we will be unified. And there will be a sense in which this unity will cross over all boundaries. Because we recognize that a common love for Christ is what makes us love each other more. And so here's what that means practically. I think it means what we talked about in Philippians, that we'll start setting aside our interests and start looking to meet the needs of others. Unity is kind of one of those things that we like to talk about in kind of an abstract way. We say, yeah, it'd just be great if we could just get along. But I think when we're talking about uh, unity in the Bible, we're talking about more than just getting along. We're talking about our hearts being knit together. We're talking about having a common love for Christ, which compels us to seek the interest of others. So, for example, if we're talking about unity, I think it'll start to display itself in things like this, that we start looking for ways to meet others' needs. So, for example, maybe there's a family of five. That seems to be a common number here at New Hope. There's a family of five, and they realize that there's a grad student or medical school student who's far away from home, and and they never get to go to someone's family, or they never get to go to someone's house. They don't have a home-cooked meal ever. They're just making things in the microwave all the time. And so the family of five sees that, and they recognize, yeah, our life is busy, but we're going to invite this person over so that we can just show them that we care about them. Or maybe it means the father of a couple of teenagers recognizing the father who has a newborn who's just struggling to stay afloat. And that father meets for breakfast with that other father just to encourage him that you can keep going. Or maybe it means the young single person looking for a way to babysit the kids so that mom and dad can get that needed break. They can get a needed date night. Or maybe it means a small group rallying together to provide financial support for someone to go on a mission trip. Or maybe it means a Bible study group providing meals for the family that's just been at the hospital. The point is this, that unity is not just some abstract thing. It's something where it will be lived out in the way that we treat each other. It'll be lived out in the sense that we'll set aside our interests and look to meet the needs of others. And so here's how we'll know that we're unified. When people are sacrificing to meet the needs of other people. And listen, this is why Paul is struggling. 
because he wants this to happen for the Colossians. He wants them to be encouraged in their hearts, but he also wants them to be knit together in love. He wants them to be setting aside their interests to meet the needs of others. But that said, I think that there's one overarching thing that Paul is struggling for, and that's this, that he wants the people of Colossus and the people of Laodicea to see that all the treasures and all of the riches and all the fullness that can be found is found in Christ alone. This is the overarching concern of this passage. Look again at verses 2 and 3 here. Uh, We'll go back to one just for the context. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Uh, Just pausing for a second. Again, mystery meaning something previously hidden but now revealed. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This idea of understanding that in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is at the heart of this passage. And in fact, I would argue that this idea of Christ possessing all the treasures, of Christ having all the riches, is at the very heart of the book of Colossians. This entire book, this is the heart of the book of Colossians. As we've said before, the main issue facing the church at Colossus is that there were some false teachers who were seeking to make their way or make inroads in the church at Colossus. And in the next two weeks that we're in Colossians, we're going to talk at length about what they were teaching. But as I've said before, the basic summary of this false teaching was this. It was Jesus plus theology. So they were teaching, yeah, sure, it's great to believe in Jesus, but then you need to add certain things to it. Specifically, certain philosophies or certain rules. Jesus is fine, these false teachers were saying, But if you really want to experience the fullness of God, if you really want to be able to know Him in the most utmost way, if you really want to know true riches and true wisdom, then you have to add these other things. This is what was happening in the church at Colossus, and that is why Paul is relentlessly driving home the point that Jesus is sufficient. That all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. That's exactly what he says in verse 3. And so, let me ask you this. What is your hope based on today? Where do you find your identity? What brings you a sense of fullness? Is your hope and your identity based on the things you do and who you are? Or is it based on who Jesus is and what He has done? This is a crucial question for us to answer. And this is the question that Paul seems to be addressing throughout the book of Colossians. He wants to make sure that the Colossians know that all of our hope and all of our fullness and all of the sources of riches and knowledge are found in Christ alone. Now, it's a crucial question for us because it's so easy to slip into this mode of thinking that somehow our identity is based on who we are and what we have done. And this is why he's warning about these people who are teaching that a certain philosophy or certain rules will help you to understand the fullness of Christ. Because these people, these false teachers, are diminishing the work of Jesus Christ. And the point that Paul is making throughout the book of Colossians, and listen, the point that he is making to us is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Our identity and our value and our worth and our hope and our fullness is based on the fact that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And that he died on the cross for our sins. And that three days later, He rose from the dead. And that in the process, He gave us His righteousness if we repent and trust Him. 
This is what our identity is based on. This is where your value is found if you are a follower of Christ. When God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. And this is the point that Paul is driving home. We titled this series on the book of Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ. That's not a clever title. I'm not the first person in the history of the world to say that this book is about the supremacy of Christ. In fact, many over the years have said the same thing. But the reason why we said that is because the title fits. That's what this book is about. It's about the fact that Jesus is the source of all hope, that he is the source of all fullness, that Jesus is better than everything else. But as Christians, it's so easy to forget that. And it's so easy to slip into this mode of Jesus plus theology and to think, well, if I really need, want to know him, if I really want to have an identity, I need to do these things. It's so easy to slip back into this works-based mentality when in reality our salvation, our sanctification is all based on the grace of God. And here's the scary thing. Other people are going to try to convince us to add something to Jesus as well. In fact, this is the reason why Paul is making the argument that he does. In fact, in verse 4, that's exactly what he says. So you remember in verse 3, he's saying, I want them to understand that all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And then in verse 4, he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, I think there's a couple things worth pointing out here in verse 4. First, it seems like dangerous teaching is coming from within the church. Most commentators would say that this plausible teaching, the Colossian heresy that he's going to be addressing in the rest of chapter 2, is actually coming from people within the church. This is not people outside the church. This is not people outside of the community of faith. These are people who would claim to be followers of Christ. So to put it in our context, he's not talking about Muslims or Buddhists or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. No, he's talking about people within the church. He's talking about people within the church undermining the role that Jesus played. So that's one observation. Here's the second observation. These people are making plausible arguments. The NIV says it this way. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In other words, what these false teachers are teaching has the ring of truth. This is a really important thing for Paul to say. Because he's reminding the church that those who are teaching things that are against the gospel will not always sound crazy. In fact, sometimes the arguments will sound good. And he's wanting to encourage them, find your identity in Christ so that you can withstand this teaching that even sounds plausible. And so this is a really important principle for us to derive from this passage. False teaching will oftentimes sound attractive and it will sound reasonable. And the first time you hear it, it might even sound right. I was reading an article about um, someone who's preaching on false teaching and they were talking about this idea that uh, false teachers will not stand up in the church wearing a sign around their neck that says false teacher. It's true, right? I mean, it would be really easy for us to identify them if that was the case. If they just came to church and they had this sign that said, I'm a false teacher, we'd be like, okay, let's just dismiss them. But that's not the way it works. In fact, most of the times their arguments are plausible. And again, when you first hear the teaching, you might even think, that sounds right. But this is exactly the point that Paul is making. He's saying we must be prepared to defend ourselves against the subtle allure of false teaching. We must fully grasp the riches of Christ, and we must find our identity in Christ so that we're not tempted to add things to the gospel. And we're not tempted to say, well, I know that Jesus died on the cross, but we need to do this also if we really want to experience the fullness of God. This is why he is relentlessly driving on this point. Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme. So at this point you're saying, well, what kind of false teaching are we talking about here? 
Well, a lot of that we'll talk about in the next two weeks, but let me just generally say this. The issue is that they are teaching that you must follow certain rules or that you must ascribe to a certain philosophy if you want to really be serious about Christ. And this type of thing still happens today. People will say things like, well, if you really want to know the fullness of Christ, or if you really want to know what it means to follow Christ, then you need to do these things. Or they'll say things like, if you really want to experience Christ in a full way, you have to listen to this preacher or listen to this teaching. Now, I'm not at all diminishing the fact that God gives us means to know Him more. For example, reading the Bible and prayer, those are important things. What I'm saying is, anything that adds to the gospel, anything that says the gospel is not enough, if you really want to experience fullness, you need to add this to the gospel, that is where the danger lies. And again, this will often be plausible teaching. Listen, if if someone were to walk in and say, I'm here and I'm going to diminish the work of Christ, listen to me, you would probably dismiss them. Or if someone were to walk in and say, I'm speaking on behalf of Satan today, listen, I would hope that you would say, I'm not going to listen, right? But that's not what false teachers do. And that's not Satan's strategy because he's far more clever than that. False teaching will sound good. It will have the appearance of wisdom. And that is why we must be so familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be so confident in who Jesus is and what he's done that we are not swayed by the ways of those who are preaching things contrary to the gospel. Listen, we must, we must know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, your identity must be based on who he is and what he has done. You don't have to add anything to the gospel to be approved by God. Your approval is based on what he did. And listen, for some of you, I would hope that would be really good news today. Some of you probably feel like a failure as a Christian. Maybe you feel that way because you just don't feel emotionally connected to Christ. Or maybe you feel that way because you feel like you're just not connected to the church body. Or maybe you feel like you've really been struggling with reading the Bible or praying. Or maybe you hear other people talking about their experience with Christ and you think, I don't have that experience. And so you feel like a failure. But hear me, your worth as a Christian is not based on what you do or who you are. It's based on what Jesus did and who Jesus is. If you are in Christ, you are his child. If you are in Christ, you have been approved. If you are in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with Christ. Now, listen, we're not saying that that diminishes the importance of things like reading the Bible and prayer or going to church. In fact, if you don't have any desire for those things, that might be a sign that you're not a Christian at all. But what we are saying is that those things aren't the means by which we are approved. And what we are saying is that those things aren't means by which we access some sort of secret knowledge or secret fullness. No, our value and our identity comes from who Jesus is and what he has done. And listen, some of you need to hear that for even more fundamental reasons today. Because maybe throughout your life you've been told that you don't measure up. Maybe you had parents that were impossible to please. That no matter how hard you tried, you could not measure up to their standards. Or maybe you have a boss that's like that. And no matter how much you do at work, they never give the stamp of approval. Maybe all of your life you felt like you just are a failure. But the book of Colossians is a medicine for that type of sickness. Because it reminds us, Jesus is enough. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. In Christ, we are sufficient because he is sufficient. And so listen, 
uh, for those that I know that are hurting because of maybe issues you dealt with with parents or bosses or spouses or who knows who else who has told you that you are a failure. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if you turn and trust in him, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son and you are fully approved. Now listen, some of you don't have that fullness because you don't know Christ. Maybe you grew up as a cultural Christian. And by that I mean you're not actually a Christian, but you're just a Christian by name. And this is just what you grew up doing, going to church, going through the motions. But you've never actually trusted in Christ. And if that's you today, I would say, receive Christ. Understand that He's the one who paid the punishment for sin on the cross. Understand that if you turn to Him and believe in Him, you can be rescued. And more than that, the sufficiency of Christ can be credited to your account. And if you're a Christian, I think that the goal here is that you would stand fast knowing that Christ is sufficient, knowing that Jesus is enough. This is why Paul is struggling for the Colossians, because he wants them to see that Christ is the source of all wisdom. He wants them to see that Christ is the treasure. Now, to be fair to the Colossians, it doesn't seem like they've given in to this false teaching. In fact, listen to what Paul says in verse 5. He says, For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so the good news for the Colossians is that they haven't given in yet, but there's this danger that is looming over them. And the same is true for us. Right? You may not have given in yet to the false teaching, but there will always be a danger to add something to the gospel. There will always be a danger to try to find your identity in who you are and what you've done rather than who Jesus is and what he's done. There will always be that danger. And that is why Paul says what he does in verses 6 and 7. He wants them to be reminded you must be grounded in Christ. Verse 6, he says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I think verses 6 and 7 are extraordinarily helpful for us because they give us some word pictures of what it means to walk in Christ. Verse 6 tells us, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. And then in verse 7, we're given a couple of pictures of what Paul is talking about. What does it mean to walk in Christ? Well, in verse 7, he gives us two pictures. One of them is this, that we would be rooted in Christ. This is obviously a picture that's taken from nature. It's referring to plants or trees. In the country of Niger in Africa, there was once a famous tree known as the Lonely Tree of Tenere. It's described as the world's most isolated tree. It was the only tree within a 250-mile radius. In fact, when you look at the picture, you see why it was the only tree, because it was in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's this amazing picture of a tree that is just growing where no, nothing else is growing at all. And scientists were baffled, what is going on with this tree? And so they dug down, and they realized that although the tree was probably only 20 to 30 feet tall, the roots were 120 feet into the earth. There was water that was below 120 feet, and somehow this tree had grown roots that had gone that deep. And so everything else around it was dead, and there's this one tree with roots that go deep. Well, this is exactly the picture that we're talking about. In Jeremiah 17, again, you can turn there if you like, there's this beautiful passage that I think gives us a picture of what we're talking about to be rooted in Christ. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. I love the book of Jeremiah, and one of the reasons I love the book of Jeremiah is because the passage is like this. It says this in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He's like a tree that has roots that grow deep, that when drought comes or when storm comes, it still survives. This is our goal. When Paul talks in Colossians 2 about being rooted in Christ, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about our roots being so deep in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are not swayed by struggles, that we are not swayed by false teaching. We are like that tree in the middle of the desert. We are like the lonely tree of Tenere. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I feel like I need to tell you the rest of the story about that tree. Um, They say every analogy breaks down at some point, and this is where the analogy breaks down for the lonely tree of Tenere. In 1973, a drunken Libyan truck driver hit the tree. Now, I don't know how that happened. You have a whole desert, 250 miles of no tree, and the truck driver hits the one tree, and he actually knocked it down and killed it. So I don't know what the analogy is for that. Uh, maybe sin leads to death. I'm not sure. Like, uh, so that doesn't fit in exactly. But I think the analogy is still the same, right? That our roots should grow down deep and that we should be able to survive the storms and the droughts because our hope is in Christ. And so, friends, let me ask you this this morning. Are your roots deep? Are your roots deep? Do you know Christ? Do you cling to the hope that is found in Christ? Are you so familiar with the good news of the gospel, that you would be able to withstand whatever came your way? Is your identity so based on who Jesus is that no matter what happens when you leave those doors, that you would recognize nothing will change the fact that you find your hope in Jesus Christ? Are your roots deep? Again, we're not advocating some secret knowledge or secret roots. That's the whole point of this passage. No, we're talking about drinking deeply from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about being so familiar with the good news that when trouble comes, we withstand the trouble. We're talking about having roots that are planted in the hope of Jesus Christ. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about finding our identity and the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's the point of the second analogy too. He says that not only are we rooted, but we are built up in Christ. If one is a picture of agriculture or of trees, the other is certainly a picture of architecture or buildings. When he talks about being built up, he's talking about the same type of principle. In much the same way that a tree with roots survives the drought or the storm, a building with a strong foundation survives the wind and the weather as well. A long time ago, my family went to St. Louis, Missouri, and we went up to the top of the arch, the famous landmark in St. Louis. And I don't know if this was just my mind, but I, I feel fairly confident this was not just my mind. But when we got to the top, I felt the thing swaying a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it was going like this or anything, but you could just feel the wind rattling a little bit. And it, honestly, it was a little bit unnerving. But here's the thing. All the years later, the arch is still standing. Why? Because its foundation is sure and it is deep. And that's the point. This is why Paul is giving us these pictures. So he can remind us that we would plant deep, that we put our roots, that we would put our foundation in the hope of Jesus Christ. Not in who you are. Because listen, you will fail but in who Jesus is because he never fails. Right? We plant our roots in the hope of the gospel because this is where true hope is found. And this is what will sustain us. This is what will keep us going even in times of trouble. And this is why if we are a Christian, if there's nothing else, we should be marked by thanksgiving. I think that's why the passage ends the way it does. So we have so much to be thankful for. Verse 7 again says this, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here's a great way to disgage your health in Christ. Are you abounding in thanksgiving? If I go back and I look at my life, the periods where I've struggled spiritually, 
those were the periods where I lacked a thankfulness for what God has done. The periods where I've been growing and the periods where I've been um, just having an upward trajectory in my relationship with Christ, I would say almost always it's marked by thanksgiving for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me just ask you today, are you abounding in thanksgiving? Listen, if you are a Christian, you have much to be thankful for. In Christ, you have the approval of God. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Christ, you have the greatest treasure that could ever be found. There should be an abounding thanksgiving if you claim to be a follower of Christ because you recognize Jesus is enough. And if we rightly understand that, then we will be overflowing with thanksgiving. Listen, Jesus is sufficient. This is why Paul is struggling for the Colossians. Yes, he wants their hearts to be encouraged. Yes, he wants them to be knit together, their hearts. But more than anything, he wants them to see that all the treasures and all of the hope and all of the wisdom of God is found in Jesus Christ. And so whatever else you struggle for, maybe your goal is that your kid would be an Olympic-level table tennis player. Go for it. Whatever it is that you struggle for, maybe it's that or maybe it's your job or maybe it's school or whatever else, make sure that you struggle for this that you struggle to make others see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and that you struggle to remind yourself that Jesus is enough. Because listen, He is enough. He is enough. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we want to acknowledge this great truth today, that you are enough. That you are enough. We want to plant our roots We want to build our foundation on that truth. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. That you are supreme over all things. That we don't need to put our hope in the things of this world. We don't need to put our hope in ourselves. But instead, we put our hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we are incredibly grateful that you have given us your word. We are incredibly grateful that you have given us this hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And we are praying that today we would put our roots, that we would build our foundation on that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.